Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Were the First Christians Cannibals? Eat My Flesh, Drink My Blood. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August 26, 2012. One of the most scurrilous charges against early Christians was that they practiced ritual cannibalism. These charges were common enough that numerous second-century writers felt constrained to refute them. The earliest explicit reference we have comes from Justin Martyr, who lived in Palestine around the year 150 AD. A few decades later, in North Africa, Tertullian employed mock exaggeration to refute the claims. He writes, Come, plunge the knife into the baby, nobody's enemy, guilty of nothing, everybody's child. Catch the infant blood, steep your bread with it, eat and enjoy. <clears throat> Charges of cannibalism might have been a case of mistaken identity. Similar charges, for example, were made against Jews, and since the first Christians were all Jews, they were often lumped together with them. Invoking a transgressive stereotype like cannibalism, <clears throat> regardless of whether it was true, was also a common way to marginalize any number of Greco-Roman groups of the day as dangerous threats to social norms. And early Christians certainly threatened social norms. <clears throat> A third and simpler explanation for the charges of cannibalism was confusion surrounding the flesh and blood Eucharist rituals of the early believers. This week's Gospel from John chapter 6 is a case in point. John writes, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. <clears throat> this is the bread that came down from heaven. Our forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. <coughs> John then describes how Jesus' controversial words scandalized the original audience. The Jews grumbled about comparing himself to God. Wasn't he the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say such things? Even his own disciples dismissed Jesus' claim as a hard saying. Who can accept this, they protested. From that time on, says John, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Ever since those first disciples deserted Jesus, Christians themselves have debated the meaning and method of the Eucharist. If they couldn't explain just what they were doing, how could their detractors so maybe it's no wonder that rumor, innuendo, and suspicion combine to result in charges of cannibalism. Just what were these socially marginal people doing in their secretive meetings? 
Well, what they were doing was taking Jesus at his word. They were making the outrageous claim that the infinite God met them in an intimate way through a ritual sharing of bread and wine. But what about those rumors of eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus? In his new book, Font of Life, the historian Gary Wills observes how Augustine ridiculed the idea that the Eucharistic bread and wine were the literal body and blood of Christ. Augustine repeatedly says, writes Wills, that Christ cannot be chewed, digested, and excreted. Augustine used a linguistic distinction to make a theological point. In his commentary on John's Gospel, St. Augustine argued that the words of Jesus refer to the validity of the mystery, not to the visibility of the mystery. It's given to the one who eats inwardly, not outwardly, the one who feeds his heart, not the one who chews with his teeth. The bread and wine, said Augustine, are signs, and the signs are divine things, it is true, but things not visible, but invisible. And so a thousand years later, the Council of Trent would thus describe a sacrament as a visible sign of an invisible grace. <clears throat> this divine human encounter in the everyday elements of bread and wine is a mystery. And mystery is the word that Paul uses to describe the gospel itself in this week's epistle. He writes in Ephesians 6.19, Pray for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. In other words, who could ever feel adequate to proclaim the mystery of the gospel? This word mystery occurs 20 times in the Greek New Testament, 16 times in Paul, and seven of those are in Ephesians alone. At some rudimentary level, the story of Jesus in general and its particular reenactment in the Eucharist is an irreducible mystery. It's something that you can describe but never fully explain. But a mystery isn't an unknowable secret. In fact, Paul says the mystery has been fully revealed. On the one hand, the gospel story is open to historical inquiry. The apostles insisted that their message was, quote, true and reasonable, because the events they described were, quote, not done in a corner, Acts chapter 26. They could be corroborated and verified, at least at some level and for a few years. But on the other hand, Paul admitted that his gospel was to the Jews a stumbling block into Greeks' foolishness. Luke wrote that the resurrected Jesus was not seen by all the people, but only by eyewitnesses whom God had chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, Acts 10.41. 
And so their witness amounted to what the Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan once called public evidence for a mystery. <clears throat> the dead of the August summer might be a strange time for an Advent poem, but I love how John Betjeman, 1906-1984, captures the scandalous mystery of the gospel in his poem, Christmas. In the first five stanzas, he describes the superficial busyness of Christmas decorations, parties, and shopping. In the last three stanzas, he pivots to the heart of the matter. Nothing you could ever claim remotely compares to the outrageous mystery of the gospel. Listen to his poem, Christmas. And is it true, this most tremendous tale of all, seen in a stained glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall, the maker of the stars and sea, become a child on earth for me? And is it true, for if it is, no loving fingers tying strings around these tissued fripperies, the sweet and silly Christmas things, bath salts and inexpensive scent, and hideous ties so kindly meant. No love that in a family dwells, no caroling in frosty air, nor all the steeple-shaking bells can with this single truth compare. That God was man in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine. The charges of cannibalism fizzled out in the third century, but the mystery remains that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. For books this week, I review a title by David McGlynn. The title of the book is called A Door in the Ocean. A Memoir. Berkeley Counterpoint Press, 2012, 266 pages. David McGlynn came by his evangelical faith honestly. His father, after all, was a suburban Catholic, and his mother what he calls a non-observant Unitarian. Likewise, he left that evangelical faith with some ambivalence, but not a whiff of acrimony, just as honestly. The elaborate denials that dodge hard questions were no match for the brutal realities that marked McGlynn's boyhood and cast a long shadow over his life. When he was 12, his parents divorced, his father moving to California and his mother staying in Texas. He and his sister racked up the air miles, shuttling between the two and negotiating their remarriages. Then, in the 10th grade, his best friend was murdered, execution style, along with his friend's father and brother in upper-middle-class Houston. The triple murder was never solved. That was 20 years ago. <clears throat> As a nationally ranked swimmer, McGlynn earned a scholarship at the University of California at Irvine. 
There he joined a conservative campus ministry, led Bible studies, and participated on mission trips to Mexico and Australia. This new faith helped make at least some sense of McGlynn's painful past. But for a sharp young man who also read Derrida and Rilke, the cognitive dissonance began to build. He began to feel like he was living life on the fringe of normal humanity as a religious freak. When college and his formal swimming career ended, life questions loomed. It's been said that a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And it's to McGlynn's credit that he faced his personal demons, his family of origin fallout, and life crises with bravery, insight, and candor. He never takes cheap shots at his family or former faith. He follows the questions where they lead, never takes the easy way out, and perseveres when the blows keep coming. For a while, his family of three was on food stamps. A swimming buddy died beside him in the pool, and one of his own sons had a complicated birth that was way too close to death. <clears throat> Today, McGlynn teaches in the English department of Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin. He says he's neither forgotten or forsaken his Christian faith. In his post-evangelical life, he confesses the fundamentals without the fundamentalism. David McGlynn, a door in the ocean. For film this week, we go to the continent of Africa, and in particular, the tiny country of Swaziland. The title of the film is called Without the King, from 2007. The tiny kingdom of Swaziland, population one million, in southern Africa, is the last absolute monarchy on earth. This documentary contrasts the reign of King Mswati III, born in 1968, with the forces agitating for a constitutional democracy. The king, who assumed the throne at the age of 18 in 1986, has 13 wives, multiple palaces, and a $10 billion bank account in Saudi Arabia. His people drink out of mud holes. The Swazis have the lowest life expectancy in the world at age 31 years down from 61 in the year 2000, and the highest prevalence of HIV infection among adults at over 50%. 70% of them live on less than a dollar a day. The film interviews the many brave people fighting for change. Pastors, AIDS activists, political opposition leaders, village chiefs, and orphanage workers. The contrast between the ancient traditions and the modern world are epitomized in the king's daughter, Princess Sikiyaniso, an 18-year-old who goes to college in California and who simultaneously defends her father and yet insists that <coughs> her country will be different in her generation. I watched Without the King on Netflix streaming. 
And finally, for poetry this week, in keeping with the Eucharistic theme, we've posted John Benjamin's poem, Christmas. The bells of waiting advent ring, the tortoise stove is lit again. In lamp oil light across the night has caught the streaks of winter rain in many a stained glass window sheen from crimson lake to hooker's green. The holly in the windy hedge and round the manor house the yew will soon be stripped to deck the ledge, the altar font and arch and pew, so that the villagers can say the church looks nice on Christmas Day. Provincial public houses blaze, corporation tram cars clang. On lighted tenements I gaze where paper decorations hang. In bunting in the red town hall says Merry Christmas to you all. And London shops on Christmas Eve are strung with silver bells and flowers. <coughs> As hurrying clerks the city leave to pigeon-haunted classic towers. And marbled clouds go scudding by the many-steepled London sky. Girls in slacks remember Dad, and oafish louts remember Mum. And sleepless children's hearts are glad, and Christmas morning bells say, Come. Even to shiny ones who dwell safe in the Dorchester Hotel. And is it true, this most tremendous tale of all, Seen in a stained-glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall. The maker of the stars and sea become a child on earth for me. And is it true, for if it is, no loving fingers tying strings around those tissued fripperies, the sweet and silly Christmas things, bath salts and expensive scent and hideous ties so kindly meant, no love that in a family dwells, no caroling in frosty air, nor all the steeple-shaking bells can with this single truth compare, that God was man in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 26th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.